and welcome to another episode of the iFreak Show. This week on our panel, we have Christina Moulton. Hey, everyone. And Alex Bush. Hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. My book is now available in paperback. I'm just going to throw that out there because I'm excited about it. And uh, yeah, I thought since uh, we have kind of a week off here and we haven't really had a chance to, uh, we'd introduce our panelists and just take a few minutes to talk to them. And then we're going to go into how we write iOS apps and things like that. So, um, and, and you know, the tools and setup and everything that we're, we're, we're running here. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. Uh, Christina, since you're the newest, why don't, why don't you go ahead and just kind of uh, give us a little bit more background, I guess, than what we got last week when you were the guest. Sure. So I've been doing iOS development since about iOS 3. Uh, when, you know, table views and things were still relatively new and spent most of that time a little bit in a small agency and then freelancing and most recently just joined up uh, with Square uh, with their iOS team for Cash App uh, and I've been working on their, their latest release uh, for their investing features. So it's been a, a really interesting transition going from some very early times where people were just trying to figure out what you should do on iOS and what apps are capable of to building out lots of MVPs and lots of initial versions of apps for various clients to joining a very large team that has an established structure and established way of doing things uh, and does, you know, working with a, a large number of people collaborating on a single app. So that's what I've been up to lately. Nice. Uh, my four-year-old just woke up from her nap. She wants to say hi to everybody and then I'm going to go turn her on a show while Alex introduces himself. Go ahead, say hi. 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 Hello. All right, Alex, go ahead and introduce yourself. I'll be right back. Uh, my name is Alex Bush. I, uh, yeah, I don't remember since what version of iOS I was kind of working with it, but a long time ago as well, maybe like eight years, nine years ago, I um, started as an Android developer, actually, was kind of free freelancing that, and then everyone wanted to build iPhone apps as well. So I slowly transitioned to it and uh, built a lot of MVPs, also built the Ruby on Rails backends for them. Because again, as a, if you're like freelancing solo, especially you need some backends. So I picked that up and yeah, and later kind of progressed from working on smaller, smaller apps, MVPs, more towards like mid-size and then large scale. <clears throat> so lately, uh, my previous client was Uber, and now I'm employed with Wayfair. And it's like large teams, uh, you know, big code bases. It's, it's just crazy. Some of them don't, don't even fit into the binary that Apple allows. 
wow. Yeah, I mean, before the Wi-Fi download, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's substantial. So, yeah, I kind of like it more, actually, when you're in a large team because you have more people to kind of take care of all the peripherals and all the operations. It's, it's easier. Yeah, it's definitely nice when uh, something happens and it's not your problem to fix everything. Right. <laughs> But then I guess there was a, it was a, there was a beauty in um, kind of running your own fast lane, right? And mm-hmm. do, being able to, I guess, deploy or do some changes very quickly, especially if you're the, like, the person writing the, the entire code base, you kind of know everything in, in and out. Yeah, I'm very much just being familiar with everything and knowing all the details about how things work. Um, we just had an issue go through CI last night where it was, well, this got through... Um, the pull release compilation, but failed overnight because it was conditional compilation and these ones are on the simulator and these ones are a device build. Mm. So mm. it's the kind of thing, if, you know, if you're doing everything yourself, you know all that stuff and you never get caught up by it. But on a big team, there's always those few little details. You can do so much more because there's so many more of you. Um, it's been a rough transition to not knowing everything. Well, that's sad though, that there are downsides, right? Like actually lost Two months, I was working on something. I don't know, maybe, maybe even more than two months, working on something where I'm reusing components from other parts of the app, like big chunks. And yeah, I, I, I guess it's still a good thing, but I get, get the benefits of like not rebuilding it from scratch, but then it's a, like sort of a juggernaut with all, all of their own dependencies and strings attached that I'm trying to pull into my thing, where, again, if it was probably a smaller app, I might not have to do that. Mm-hmm. I've been learning a lot about uh, keeping my architecture a lot cleaner because pulling things out into modules and then being able to work with small portions of the code base is suddenly very valuable, whereas before... I never really got to a point where that mattered. Mm-hmm. Uh, my compilation times got a little long. It was okay, you know, go through, profile that, figure out, you know, where did I let Swift infer types that it's not quite sure about, and that was usually enough to get by. But now, with a, a great big code base, mixed Swift and Objective C, and, and a whole lot of stuff going on, and a bunch of build scripts and, and everything, learning how to pull things out cleanly so that you're not going crazy trying to figure out what the code actually does. Um, but it all kind of comes together nicely. Is has been a really fun thing to play with. So actually, I, I'm curious. Uh, you, you said it's uh, Square, right? That, yes. That's what, okay. So do you guys do modularization for sort of layers of like, oh, this is a persistence library, and this is a networking library, and this is a, like a shared UI library, and you import that, or do you also uh, have uh, like feature modules? Uh, I'm on Cash App, which recently switched to uh, tab bar navigation. And we've got kind of internal functions that map really nicely to those tabs. So there's just directly sending money to people. There's buying stocks. Um, there's going back and looking at your activity. So we do have a lot of modules that actually correspond to those kind of feature things, uh, as well as some shared UI networking, uh, mm-hmm. stuff like that. But there's always some stuff that you kind of can't fully nicely modularize. There's always some stuff that's just kind of part of the app that, is so intertwined everywhere that it's it's a bit of a mess, but um, just one of those realities in a, a living, breathing code base that you can't really tell everybody to stop for a month and I'm gonna go clean all of this up and nobody touch it. <laughs> um, 
but we're, we're slowly getting there. I mean, in fact, um, our features are generally large enough that in a lot of cases we'll have the feature module, uh, kind of the core functionality feature module and another module for UI. So we can do kind of logic work and, and work on things that way, uh, work against unit tests for a while and then work on just our features UI and then you could actually run the whole app and, and do everything. So yeah, so I'm back. <laughs> yeah, I was just interested in, in hearing you talk about, yeah, how you put things together at Square and what it's like to kind of come on board. Um, so, so what are you using for CI as we're diving into this? One of those fun things in a big company where it's like, I am peripherally associated with this and have some idea. Uh, I believe it's all Jenkins, Jenkins. Xcode build type stuff. Um, it's very much rolling our own with a few things that we pull in either from open source community or from the more common Square stuff. Cause we're a cash app. We're kind of a, a separate line of business. Um, but we do fall right. under square. So once in a while we, we pull some of their stuff, but there are some differences. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm. I, uh, yeah, at Wayfair, we actually, I'm happy we're use, still using BuddyBuild. Mm. We're like on a legacy account or something and there's still fingers crossed, not shutting us down. So, so I can be actually useful, <laughs> but uh, cause I, a couple of companies ago, it was just a team of two, but a huge app. So I had to like get into the whole CI, everything and figure that out. And actually, if I remember correctly, it was like six months before they got bought by Apple. So we, we, we set everything up ourselves with BodyBuild. So I kind of know how it works. But then every other system, like previous uh, job, I, uh, it was Jenkins, some customs. Uh, I have no idea. I'm, I'm <laughs> helpless. And <laughs> Slack channel is just like, I asked people to save me. Yeah, I had a case today where it was like, it would be really nice if I could improve this part of our CI, but here's what I think the pseudocode might look like, and I hope someone knows where that needs to go. So I have no idea what script this belongs in or even what language it's written in. It's probably Bash. So yeah, you see, this is the sign of uh, sort of how iOS evolved, right? Because like, let's say five years ago, that you would never think of having sort of a dedicated operations team, right? For, for like iOS, but it's, it's just an app. I mean, it's tiny, right? It's in your pocket. Come on. <laughs> I, I just had a conversation with some folks at JFrog and they run Artifactory, which is another place where you can, you know, you pipe your stuff into it and then it, uh, it builds your binaries and, you know, you can use CI CD to push your app up and stuff like that. And yeah, it sounds like it's simple, build, push, but it's not always the case. Yeah, we've got some, uh, some UI snapshot tests, which are absolutely wonderful, and I love them. And especially my first month or so saved me so many times, saved me again yesterday. But they take time to run, and mm -hmm. getting that kind of thing behaving really nicely in CI is just difficult. And everyone I've talked to who's done the more interactive UI tests, the, those tend to be even worse, the more behavioral Mm -hmm. uh, stuff is, is just really tough to get it working. It, at some point, because no one person is going to know everything and see everything, you've kind of got to rely on some automation to, to verify things, but it's definitely a, a burden to have to maintain it. And yeah, five years ago in iOS, it was hilarious. I mean, it, I remember people saying like, well, we don't have to write unit tests. We have types. That's all the Ruby guys ever <laughs> write tests for. So like, what, what would I write a test for? It's just, I put data in a table of you. If it, you know, the JSON parses the first time it parses, that's it. Yeah, it's, 
it's it's interesting stuff to be sure. It's the unit tests run fast because you're essentially running at the speed of the machine, right? You know, yeah, they're great. Throw a value in, it crunches the numbers and it throws it back out. But the UI tests, yeah, it has to a it has the warm up time. However long it takes you to load up your app and then put all the data in the right place. And then, you know, once the setup's done, then it actually has to run the test, but it's running at UI speed now, which is designed for humans. And so, yeah, it's going to take some time. Yeah, even just spinning up the simulator is a notable difference yep. between just uh, just getting code running is, yeah, really different. Yeah. So yeah. I'm curious, uh, and I, I didn't really do much of an introduction. I haven't been a host on this show for like two or three years up until a couple of weeks ago. And um, so, yeah, so I haven't done very much iOS development in a while. And before that, I was really doing it mostly to uh, stay current on the show. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't have any apps in the app store or anything like that. And so for me, you know, listening to this, I mean, I understand a lot of the ideas behind uh, the DevOps. And I also understand, you know, the process, I guess, of CI and CD to, a, to an extent. But um, I'm, I'm wanting to do kind of a modern setup for iOS apps so that I can, you know, get back in and, you know, kind of get back on the horse and figure out how to make it ride. And so I'm wondering what you all are using to make this go. And that's why I was asking, okay, so what are you using for CICD? Because maybe I can go play with Jenkins for a little bit when you do an episode about it. But um, yeah, w what else are you all using? I'm assuming you're using Xcode, but I guess that's not something I can take for granted. So. I do. I guess technically I don't need to um, at my current job because we do do pretty much everything programmatically. I think we have like a handful of nibs that have existed since the beginning of time. Those are evil. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love it. Uh, pros and cons. Pros and cons. Every tool has a use. Um, but Xcode's actually been really nice to speak. I've been falling into instruments a lot more. Um, we've got some performance issues in a few places and being able to dig in and profile and see Unfortunately, the dozen little things that are contributing uh, to the issue, uh, Xcode's instruments have been absolutely wonderful this week. I don't know that I've run into that many people who rely on like the JetBains alternative and that so much these days, um, as much as we complain about Xcode. Used to be the case when it was Objective-C. <clears throat> I think the app code was mm -hmm. sort of tooling was way better for Objective-C. I don't even know if it works for Swift actually. But yeah. uh, I'm assuming it does. They're still selling it. So <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, maybe they sell it to LinkedIn. They're, they're like the people who don't want to move on with the times and still, I think, 100% Objective-C or something. At least that's what I heard. I don't uh, know. But um, Visual Studio, I think, is sort of an option. I usually use it occasionally for, um, to be honest, mostly actually merge conflicts, I guess, because then they quite often the merge conflict is in the Xcode project file, so I can't really run Xcode because it's not going to yeah. set everything up and even like index properly sometimes. So instead, I just go to, it's sort of an editor on steroids, um, Visual Studio for me, and then I fix all the merge conflicts and then I like properly run Xcode project. Uh -huh. But it's actually, it's probably going to sound controversial to other iOS developers, but I think it's actually pretty good these days. Like Xcode, it crashes. Yes, it has some kinks, but it feels, well, 
more lightweight than app code ever felt. Mm. Yeah, it's nice. Like, I definitely catch myself falling back to like sublime text or something once in a while. Just, it's mm -hmm. like Xcode is just too heavy for what I'm dealing with. Yeah, I do quite a bit of web development and that I do in Visual Studio Code because it it's that nice, you have some of the uh, uh, IDE feel, but it's mostly a text editor. Right. Yeah, and I think the main thing, if I, now think about it, if I could, um, well, on a completion, yes, that's sort of the, the one of the most important features and like type lookup. But if I could mm -hmm. build and run my, well, I even just unit tests, I don't even care about um, the simulator, right from Visual Studio, then that might be preferred choice. I, I, guess I, I guess probably you could if you're like really geek out and like configure it, right? I just never, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not handy that way. <laughs> Feels like one of those things that's totally possible, but would take you days if you tried to sat down to work yeah. out all the kinks. I recently started to use, speaking of tools, I recently started to use Dash app. It's uh, one of the old ones for mm -hmm. like documentation lookup. Mm -hmm. And I started using it just for like, well, documentation lookup. But what I, what I realized, latest version, I don't know since what version it became like that. It's actually kind of like a mini web browser with tabs. Uh -huh. And you could do a Google search in them as well if you can't find anything in, in your docs lookup. And I kind of like to have it like that as a sort of a dedicated quote-unquote work browser just for that and nothing else. And I try not to open Chrome if I like deepen code. Mm. Yeah. What, what are you all using for testing? It's the built-in exit tests, right? It's like uh, what Apple gives us, right? what Xcode runs. A few years ago, there were... Quick and Nimble was very popular. Unit testing, what is it, Cocopod, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if it's as popular anymore. It's uh, basically sort of RSpec type of thing from Ruby World, right? Yep. Yeah, I don't know. I think everyone just defaults on, on uh, Apple's exit tests. And you can, again, run them from Xcode. They have the UI for it. Yeah, we're the same. And the interactivity has been kind of nice, like how easy it is in Xcode to go in and just run the tests in one file or just a single test over and over. Um, when you're dealing with, with a failure or something, that's, for me, that would be the hump that another tool would have to get over and it'd be a little tough. Uh, I think our snapshot tests are based on a tool that Facebook released a while ago. Uh, it seems to be one of the most commonly ones used ones. Um, yeah. It doesn't do anything super fancy, but it, it works. But yeah, yeah it's mostly... It's, it's interesting to have this conversation because, yeah, I remember a few years ago, uh, people were looking at options and it seems like, at least for now, things have mostly converged on what Apple gives you. So, I mean, Apple stuff got better, um, but I think a lot of what we were trying to do with Quick and Nimble and that just ended up being a lot to maintain and a lot to spec. Um, uh -huh. So I think uh, at least we tend to write a lot more tests that are much more condensed then kind of the, the more flow, interactive, stateful things that, that those were really good for. Yeah, I wish it continued developing. I think there was like, a, at least it felt like a wave of like Ruby-ish type of people doing things like Quick and Nimble and before then, uh, what is it, OC Mock mm -hmm. and yep. a bunch of other basically 
trying to mimic RS spec and 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 friends, but it yeah I guess lately Apple just got better and we, then we switched to Swift so it's more it's tougher to do meta programming with it. Mm -hmm. and, mm. Yeah, it feels like the community and the tools and, and the, the directions in which progress is being made has really changed a lot since it became Swift. Yeah. Yeah. I wish I wish it actually continued because now now I think about it. The one thing I wanted that I had in Ruby and Rails world, and I could never have like figure out how to set up with uh, Swift or iOS in general, having a running guard or something like that. Basically, a thing in your terminal that observes changes in your project's files, and every time you save your file, it just runs the tests again and shows you little notification on Mac, I guess, Mac notification saying, oh, you have like all the tests passed or like one fails now. So I don't have to re-hit re like, re re the command U for all the unit tests to run. Yeah, so we, I guess we don't, it's not, we don't run from terminal anything really. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood and I just launched my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. It's up on Amazon. We self-published it. I would love your support. If you want to go check it out, you can find it there. The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. Have a good one. Max out. Yeah, Apple's tools all seem to work really well very directly, but they don't seem to automate and hook into things very well. So when you're starting to do something that's less kind of hello world, I'm going to go through the sequence of steps and always remember to run my unit tests um, right. or only run them when I build that. That's when mm -hmm. Apple stuff isn't quite as nice. So it's kind of like, it's nice and it's good enough most of the time, but some of the depth and use case handling of some of the other stuff is just so much nicer. Hopefully we'll get back to, to building nice stuff. But like you said, it's just a harder thing to do in Swift. Yep. Yeah. But I, I definitely agree with Alex in the sense that having those automated tools that just automatically give me feedback were definitely a nice way to go in the past. Yeah. I think, uh, what, what other tools we have? Uh, I guess another big chunk, but we sort of touched upon it is like CI, but maybe deployment is another one. And Fastlane, what is it? Since probably like four or five years ago, that, that that's the tool to go. And I think till this day, although again, being in a large organization, I don't really know actually how we do deployment. <laughs> I was going to say, I, I think we use Fastlane. I think I've heard of it being used. I haven't seen a lot of alternatives lately though. So it's kind of like Fastlane yeah, or roll your so. own, mm -hmm. which I'm guessing roll your own is probably usually like a Google doc with a list of steps. Yeah. the the uh, So I did say that I have never deployed an app to the app store, but that's not entirely true. I was involved in one, but I was working on the back end piece that did the push notifications. And so I, I had to be involved in the deployment itself to a certain degree. And yeah, there was the provisioning of the developer profile yeah. or something. Yeah. And it was like, like all these other steps and I'm just going, why is this so hard? And so, yeah, yeah. It, lo it looks like Fastlane does a lot of that work for you where it just sets that stuff up so you can just, push it in on your own yeah under the hood they they actually what they do they have a web crawler like it's it's a ruby gem again right yes it is same, same people so they they have a 
what is it, a capybara type of thing, actually having an instance of a browser and going and clicking, logging in for you into your iTunes account and like clicking those links and buttons there to upload your uh, packages and stuff. That's still, I guess it's automation, but it's just uh, Apple's not giving us any API. It's crazy. Yeah. And it works. That, that's what's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, the ugly web crawler stuff, I've been tempted to build some of that for podcasts because their podcast integration stuff is just as bad. Yeah. Um, so what else? So deployment, uh, coding tools, tests. Crash reports. Oh, yeah, that's a big one. What, Crashlytics? Do you guys use that? Uh, yeah, or whatever they are trying to force us onto or whatever we're grandfathered into. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, that's what I used a lot for freelance stuff. I had one client who liked Sentry, which was kind of a cool setup. Didn't mm -hmm. really see a huge difference there. Um, and a number of cases of stuff, kind of back to the same theme, what's built into Xcode was good enough for a, a handful of my smaller freelance clients, the ones where we didn't have, where all we wanted were crash reports. Um, mm -hmm. Generally worked okay. You don't, I think there's some privacy issues and you don't necessarily get each and every one all the time, but it was generally good enough. Uh, Crashlytics, Fabric, that kind of thing where you can uh, go through and close issues and see if they reoccur after you think you fixed them. That kind of functionality is really nice. I think uh, Entry's a sponsor of this episode, so. Oh, great. <laughs> just, just for full disclosure. I had no idea about that. Um, I remember it being pretty pleasant, but it was probably about a year yeah. ago. Um, they were most interested because of the possibilities of self-hosting if things took off, and then that was um, mm. ideologically the direction they would have wanted to take if things were going really well. Hmm. I think uh, back in the day was a new relic actually was trying to get into mobile apps, and they were an option as well. And I think one of the freelance projects I used it. It was kind of nice because uh, I, I was familiar with it from Ruby World, mm -hmm. but uh, I think that died out and then Crashlytics effectively took over everything and I think till this day it's like the go-to yeah uh, it seems to that seems to be kind of a common thing is either Apple built something good enough nobody else can bother or they buy buddy build or somebody else just kind of really becomes the dominant player right it's only, only one super common alternative mm, yep. yeah I, I mean what UI stuff I guess it's well, yeah, it's more of a coding pick rather than... We don't really have any options, right, for um, Nib files uh, to, to like make them in a different app rather than Xcode. No, I don't think so. There, there is, um, for debugging, though, there is Reveal. That's yes. A, that's a great application. Reveal is wonderful. So it's basically going to show you like a, like a interface UI inspector and you can rotate in 3D mode, every, like look at all of your UI pieces, everything in, in depth. It's really nice. And, and it, uh, it gives you way more information than Apple's tool because they have a similar thing now in Xcode. And you can update things on the fly and see them change. So yeah, that, that's the new stuff. I have not played with it yet, but people tell me it's great. Yeah, so for freelancing projects, I often used a lot of auto layout. Um, so it was usually a small enough thing, few enough developers, conflicts weren't a huge problem. Uh, and then Reveal app was really nice for that because you could actually go in and modify the constraints at runtime to tweak something if it wasn't quite right or see what impact would have if 
you know, if I change this font size, do I have to change anything else? Uh, that was absolutely favor so many times. Hmm. Another thing I just remembered, another tool I learned about it a few months ago, it was actually kind of a lifesaver, uh, especially because the feature I'm working on for the last three months is deep links related. So this thing is, um, it actually helps you, XC run, it, I think it's like one of the built-in developer tools uh, with, that comes with Xcode. Basically, you can launch any deep link in your simulator instance from your terminal. Nice. Oh, wow. So, so it's XC run um, space booted, meaning like the currently booted device, and then, in, in, uh, and then you paste your uh, URL, like HTTP, blah, blah, blah. And then it basically will treat it, the system uh, or instance of that simulator, like the iOS system in it, will treat it like you tapped that link in Safari browser. So, yeah, it's just fantastic. It's like saves uh -huh. so much time clicking all over the place. And let's say you were like in the home screen or even a different app, doesn't matter, in your simulator, you then run it in Xcode, that command, and then it will um, open, jump to your app, open it, and then deep link. Nice. It's great. I guess, too, for the use case where you want to see how it handles deep links while the app is already running. So there was like, yeah, you always could copy paste into Safari and deal with it, but that never yeah. showed you exactly what was happening that way. So, because, yeah, exactly. That's what I was doing before. Just copy paste in Safari. Yeah, it's a pain. Oh, so much time. Well, same yeah. thing with reveal, right? You could always go and just tweak it in code and run it again. Mm -hmm. But, you know, you're done in three minutes. It would take you an hour to go through the iterations before. I'm trying to think of anything else that saves me a lot of time these days. Source tree, um, or just any really nice way of uh, visually creating commits. So, you know, if you've done a bunch of stuff and you want to split it up into a couple commits to make it easier for someone else to review, um, and then that's the one case where a visual tool for Git helps a lot compared to the command line. You know, I want these three lines here in this little chunk of this other file and that, and that's one commit, and then, no, okay, I actually don't need to put the other stuff into that, and I can, but you know, the changes in this other file are separate. Uh, I'm so. This looks really nice. <laughs> I would look it up, and I'm like, oh, oh wow, uh, source tree. Yeah, yeah, it's I'm, pretty sweet. I'm so um, not conflicted per se, but I have an odd use case for it. Uh, again, I'm sort of Ruby background-ish. I'm I'm doing everything in terminal, and like commands are, I love them, but. This specific thing, like neat picking the specific changes that I want to commit, I'll do them in source tree, and then I'll jump to terminal and <laughs> commit there. Yeah, I just add in source tree and then commit. Yeah, yeah, definitely do that. Huh. Oh, another thing I just remembered actually that's um sort of becoming more and more um sort of an important tool in iOS uh, tool belt arsenal. Um, but I personally don't know much about, unfortunately, uh, Swift linter. Ah, uh, yes. So I know that thing can be configured. I know you can have your custom linter commands or whatever validators, whatever they're called. And I believe it's all you write them in Swift. That's sort of another, if I'm not mistaken, another thing uh, that's, that's great. And I've seen a bunch of tools at Wayfair not just for linting, but maybe related to it or around it, that are effectively command lines, uh, commands, 
written in Swift. And I was very pleasantly surprised because usually other companies, I would see everyone doing, well, if they're really, if they're good, they're doing Ruby, but likely they're doing Node.js. Mm, yeah. And it breaks constantly. <laughs> yeah. So is that the Swift lint by Realm? Um, is it? Yeah, it's Swift lint. That, I, I think that's the one you're talking about that is written in Swift. Um, I've used it yeah, a few it times. It's, yeah. it's quite nice. Um, you can kind of do things for the whole project as a whole, or you can drop in a, a YAML file into any one directory if you want to do something specific for that directory. So sometimes, you know, for unit tests, we'll allow a, a force try or something. And so we can disable that just individually in just that one directory where we, where we want to do that as opposed to the project as a whole. Uh, it, it's a really very much a command line type tool, but you can hook it into uh, as a build step. Uh, in Xcode, so you can have it run and, and have everything show up there. Uh, but it also integrates into CI really well. So we have it as a uh, commit push hook, actually. Mm -hmm. Same. Yeah. So we'll uh, it'll get there, and then we we run a lint on CI just in case you squeeze something by um, that whole by directory thing. There's a couple cases where things aren't necessarily exactly the same running in different environments. Um, we run into just a few little cases like that, so we do rerun it on CI just to double check. Um, been a while, I think, since we've had an issue. But yeah, having it as a um, in Xcode, you can run the whole script locally on commit or on push and running in CI. Uh, and working with a lot of developers, it is so nice, even if you don't agree with a rule, just to know that things are going to be consistent. Mm -hmm. uh, once in a while, it's I'm like, oh, this is kind of annoying. It's like, yeah, you know, just because I don't like that spacing. Yeah, but then we've got lint for something else that I really do care about. So we've got this nice formatting and I don't end up with 300 character long lines. So it's, it's well worth it overall. Um, yeah. Well, and I can tr train my brain to parse the weird stuff too. So. Yeah. yeah it's not so, bad. so the one thing that that's been annoying lately for me, and I think I got spoiled at the previous company. Basically, yes, having a linter is great, but then the little annoying things like spaces, extra spaces or extra lines, it will tell you about it, not let you commit. And then you have to go go and fix it yourself. Why can't you just do it for me? I do know. Machine. And the thing is, the previous company actually had a thing that would do it for you. Oh, nice. Because, yeah, there's some right. of them that, you know, your, your line's too long. You don't want it to just truncate and do it. But, yeah, you've got excess spaces here. Like, just clean them up for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm half tempted to write a script that just literally does that. Just... Yeah, I've also seen it where there are two equivalent expressions, but one is preferred in mm -hmm. in your linter. And so it'll just sub the one for the other. Right. Yeah, that's nice. But yeah, it'd be a nice thing to get built on top of Swift Lint at some point would be at least some some auto fixes for some of the rules. So yeah, I, I, I'm, in my spare time, I'm trying to look into sorcery just for that mm. reason, actually, to have my little little things like that. I don't know. It's kind of complex thing on its own, but I want to start somewhere like sort imports alphabetically. Let's start there. Yeah. And if I can pull that off, then maybe like, well, do those spaces. And after that, maybe some other code generation. That's sort of another thing that was great at previous company uh, at Uber. They had um, for, for, 
network request contracts between client side and the backend, we actually had a one thrift file declared that, and then code for the backend and for the client side would be out of generated out of that thrift file. So everyone is on the same page and you don't have to write your networking, like plumbing networking code at all. It gets generated by that tool. Kind of like Swagger. Like yeah. they're, they're code generators for Swagger, sort of similar concept, but for Thrift. I don't even know what Thrift is. It just has its own like format or whatnot for that contract. Yeah. We have something similar, but I have no idea if it's Thrift-based or not. I just know that the server makes changes and we automatically get them as long as we run our local script. Mm -hmm. I think you kind of have to bump them, but once you do, it just automatically pulls everything in and, and generates, unfortunately, Objective-C, but it works. As long as you don't see it, right? Oh, it is ugly, but yeah, it works. Yeah, and that reminds me, actually, networking. So another tool that's um, irreplaceable, it's just such a lifesaver, is Charles. Mm. No, not not our lovely Charles. <laughs> <laughs> also irreplaceable, but yeah, I, I I am gorgeous. Right. But so is the face on the Charles proxy. Charles proxy, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So that thing is fantastic. I think it's uh, regardless whether you iOS dev or JavaScript front end, doesn't matter. It just captures all the stuff flying in and out from your machine, so you can debug all the. All the uh, yeah, I guess examine all of those payloads. Yeah, it's funny. I, I've been using Charles longer than I've been writing code because um, I used it when I was in IT. Because <laughs> <laughs> we, we'd want to see what's getting sent out on that machine, you know, because it's not doing what it's supposed to do. And then, oh, wow, <laughs> not supposed to be doing that. <laughs> yeah, we've got a bit of an alternative. It's uh, Pony Debugger, uh, which is actually kind of cool because what you end up doing is running the app uh, making sure that Pony Debugger is enabled and then going to a web page and just pulling up your session, which entertainingly, because it kind of runs for the whole company, you'll see other people's debugger sessions there. So if you wanted to scope in on what someone else is dealing with, you could. Um, but it's very similar interface to Charles Proxy. It just works really nicely for us to just stick that into debug builds and, and pull it in. But yeah, definitely yeah. having something where you can introspect into your networking calls is absolutely necessary after a certain point yeah also speaking of networking i mean because I, I could see you know using something like charles for example if you're trying to see what the app or the simulator in this case is sending through the back to you know to the back end do you have any preferred back ends i mean i remember when parse was really big and then it went open source i mean large organizations usually go for custom right it's right they're too big for in my experience for smaller companies they would tend to go for parse or realm and that will they will crash and burn miserably typically and then they would if they can survive just build a normal like ruby on rails http rest something yeah i would go for that from scratch like from from the beginning personally <laughs> but yeah it feels like after a couple of years of of parse and not being a thing we kind of got enough lessons learned out of it to realize that you're either going to hit that point very quickly where you need to replace it or you're just never going to get there anyway and it doesn't really matter. Um, I've seen a few use cases for Realm that aren't too bad. Um, really using it more as just a, a synced up database 
And if you write your code well enough, that wouldn't be too terrible to swap out as long as you're not doing a whole lot of custom stuff. But some of their syntax and formatting, having to write your own custom layer on some of, um, you know, how you get uh, updates about the diffs and collections and that kind of thing would be a little bit, bit tricky. Um, yeah, relying on their web sync would be a little, something that would concern me a little bit more compared to using it as just an on-device database. But yeah. yeah, everybody just seems to, at this point, at least understand that software is a little more serious and there's a little more to it than just, oh, I want an app. Um, and understanding like, yeah, you know, there's there's data, it's coming over the network, we're going to need a server to store this. You can't magically have two phones talking to each other with nothing in the middle. Or you can with two, but not with 200. Yep. Another one that I've used is Runscope. So <laughs> that's, it's uh, similar to the idea of Charles Proxy, except it runs on the web. And so it's an intermediary that mimics the API. And so you send your API requests to them and then they forward them along to the actual API and they log all the stuff in the middle. And so then you can see what's getting sent through it from a production application. Is it, is it like, uh, what's that replay tool for integration testing? Um, I forgot the name of that technique where you run your app as it normally would go and exactly what you said would happen, but only locally though. Like it will record all the requests and the responses you got and then cache them, the JSON, right? And then the next time you run it, those tests, now it's offline, just hitting your cache. Yeah, I've seen uh, Ruby had a, a library called VCR that did that. Right, exactly, exactly yeah. Um, and yeah, I've seen other tools like that that do the same kind of thing. Yeah, there was one for iOS, forgot the name. I guess it's not as common. Usually, yeah, the, the, now I think about it, it's like a bunch of JSON files in your bundle, unit testing bundle. That's what you usually have for those stubbed responses. Yep. What kind of keyboard do you guys have? That's an important tool. <laughs> Everyone got their mechanical ones? No, I, uh, for a very long time now, have loved the Microsoft Sculpt keyboards probably going on 15 years. Isn't that like traitorous since we're talking about Apple here? My position has always been that Microsoft can build reasonable hardware. <laughs> Apple can also build reasonable hardware and I'd argue they're probably more of a hardware company than Microsoft. But the thing that I've always had luck with with Microsoft has been mice and keyboards and such. Um, there's just not a lot of other entry level kind of that curved slightly ergonomic but don't go crazy about it kind of keyboards. Um, so that's just kind of been reliable for me, whether it's the, the USB or the funky little Bluetooth guy or whatever. A couple of years ago, I put out a survey asking people what topics they wanted us to cover on devchat.tv. And I got two overwhelming responses. One was from the JavaScript community. They wanted a React show. And the other one was from the Ruby community and they wanted an Elixir show. So we started both. The React show though is React Roundup. And every week, we bring in people from the React community and we have conversations with them about React, about the community, about open source, about what goes into React, how to build React apps, and what's going on and changing in the React community. So if you're looking to keep current on the current React ecosystem and what's going on in React, you definitely need to be checking out React Roundup. You can find it at reactroundup.com. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what brand mine is. It has the fancy um, cherry key switches in it. 
I bought it and I, I felt really cool for like a month. And then I realized that I really don't care. <laughs> yeah, I've had a hard time with all the debate about the MacBooks and the, the keyboards and everything. It's kind of like I like I know there's a difference, but I just can't care about it. Yeah, for me, the actual, because I remember people complaining about the butterfly key switches mm -hmm. in the latest Mac, Mac Pro or MacBook Pro. And mine has them. And I've run into a couple of issues where they're a little bit, they, uh, where they either stick more easily or, you know, I, I think I had one give out and had to get it replaced. But for the most part, I don't care. The, the keyboard on my laptop is just the, the layout bothers me more than the key switches. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I mean, I can get work done on it. I, I start working on it for five minutes or so, and then I just kind of adapt to it and I'm fine. But yeah, I've got a bunch of uh, Bluetooth keyboards as well. And I mean, I can swap them out without too much trouble and it really doesn't matter that way either. So um, I'm pretty happy with that. I will say though that I have a uh, I have my MacBook Pro and then I have an old cheese grater Mac that I plan on upgrading. I found a, um, I think it was a Lifehacker article that says here, here's, here's the kit that you need and then here's how you upgrade the memory and the, um, I think it was the CPU or something else, but you can, up, you can make like a hundred or $200 upgrade on the cheese grater Mac and then you can run modern Mac OS on it. And so, um, and I have a program called ShareMouse, ShareMouse.com. And what it does is it actually, um, it'll share your keyboard across. So it's kind of like a KVM switch, but you share your keyboard across your machines. So for me, um, I still have my, well, many years now, and it's still alive. I have this uh, Logitech keyboard. It's very soft. I cannot use uh, mechanical keyboards. My, just my fingers hurt. So I have that one and it has like a classical Mac layout. Yeah, I just love it. <laughs> and I, I, can't, I absolutely hate the new Apple keyboards, like the, the whole new key switch or whatever they call it, butterfly thing. Ugh. Just, just give, me, give me back my old <laughs> Apple keyboards. Yeah. My understanding is that they're switching back in the newer. Really? Pros. Yeah. yeah. The I very latest so. MacBook Pros are. They're at least different. They're not the full-on butterfly. I don't know if they're literally the old ones, but my, my understanding is that they're they're a slightly improved version of the old ones. So yeah, could free up all those cycles of everyone complaining to right. complain about the price of what is it the wheels for the Mac Pros now? Four hundred dollars for four wheels, <laughs> and apparently you can only buy four. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, a lot of this stuff, I have to say, you know. If, if I didn't need a Mac for some of the stuff that I did, I mean, specifically iOS type development, because I'm, I'm currently also learning React Native. And so, um, you know, it still requires iOS and Xcode to build your iOS apps. And if I didn't need it for that, I'd probably switch off of the Mac just because, you know, you pay, pay a premium for the hardware. I really love Mac OS, but I don't love it, the price point difference enough. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's definitely fair. But you you can also, you know, you can set up the builds so that they'll run in the cloud and stuff. But then you've got to find another way to simulate them and things like that. So, 
I'm also curious, do either of you do anything in Swift that's not iOS de development? So like with the perfect framework or some of these other server-side frameworks? I played with um, um, Vapor because I thought, oh, finally, finally I found better Ruby on Rails. I, I like Ruby on Rails conceptually, it, it just the whole type system and uh, them initializing things for me automatically just kills me. I just, I can't, not anymore. I used to be able to work with that, not anymore. After I read a bunch of those old books. Um, but um, I, I, I guess if it was my own project, I might go for it if I need an API. But I, it's too limited relative to comparing to Ruby on Rails in terms of template rendering for like templating, just normal web app templating HTML. So I kind of gave up and switched back to Ruby on Rails for my own projects for that. Yeah, I write my backends in Rails, so. Yeah, I'd be a little concerned picking up a, a Swift server framework at this point, just given um, the point of evolution they're in, that there could be a major rewrite that would be that would impose a lot of burden on me having to keep up with with that change at a given point that would make me pretty nervous compared yeah. to the very good alternatives out there nice are there any tools that you use for like logging or i know we already mentioned like sentry which kind of picks up your exceptions or um errors but i don't know i and one thing that exists, I guess, in the web space is that your applications generally generate logs. And so there are tools for just kind of keeping track of more than just the exceptions where they're actually collecting, you know, you can turn them into analytics and things like that. Yeah, we do track some stuff in Crashlytics. Um, that's kind of more soft warning type stuff. We do have an analytics platform. I don't know which one it is. Um, and that does seem to be something where there isn't kind of one dominant player that's taken over that space. Uh, there still seem to be a, a whole bunch of viable alternatives uh, for dealing with that kind of stuff, uh, generally built more specifically around analytics as opposed to, to just logging, right? They're usually more for extracting information out of user behavior, as horrible as that sounds. Yeah, I think uh, segment was pretty popular at some point because it would be the aggregator of, of uh, or whatever, funnel, well, yeah, probably aggregator into a bunch of them. Um, but um, I guess normally you don't really log, like you could, and there are tools like Lumberjack library, or I think that was the name. And, uh, yeah, Coco Lumberjack. Uh, they would... Uh, log like log log into like on the disk and you can then hook up connect your device to your machine then import or export import logs i don't think it's sort of throughout my, throughout my career was never as that useful to be honest now the only thing i've ever seen is like an internal test builds give people a way to file a bug report with the log attached so right. whatever you would be logging um when you're running an Xcode, just also pipe that to a file and attach that an email. That, that's the only thing I've ever really seen happen much. I'm sure there's some of the current logging frameworks that make that really easy, but 
was never that hard. Makes sense. All right. Well, I don't know if there's anything else that we should dive into here. I, I guess one other tool that I can think of that might be useful is, um, is there some kind of system for like pushing beta copies of your apps to interested parties' phones? So for example, the CEO of your company or something before you actually deploy to the app store. Well, there's kind of two things, I guess. There's uh, TestFlight, which is been acquired and bought by Apple and deployed within their framework. So you can go right into iTunes Connect um, and do some kind of beta testing via that. Um, and I'm not super familiar with it, but I want to say that Fastlane with an enterprise certificate would also work, that you'd be able to uh, do some internal company employment. I don't know how much they have available for over-the-air setup. I know it's not a particularly difficult thing to generate the manifest for, so I wouldn't be surprised if Fastlane does it, but... I, th I think typically um, the approach that companies take would be like a body build or similar type of repository, if you will, of those builds. And then you go and pull from it for new updates. So it wouldn't be over the air, really. Uh, but the, this app, whatever that thing is, would notify anyone interested such as CEO or any other stakeholder like oh there is a new update for this um, your app alpha or whatever the name is and then you just go open that app and pull update and pull the latest binary that way but mostly though I guess until you become so big that you really need to do enterprise setup you really just go through test flight they have up to a uh, thousand people now or more maybe these days. Yeah, I want to say it's a thousand and you can sometimes get permission if you have a larger company maybe. Right. It's meant for just internal use. And there's also what was Hockey App that got acquired and is now Microsoft Visual Studio App Center. Um, mm -hmm. And I've run into using that one just as an alternative to, to whatever else um, when you have iOS and Android builds and you want to manage them in the same place. It's been really nice for that. Popping over one email list or something. Yeah, and App Center's pretty cool. I wind up going to the Microsoft events every year, and I typically wind up talking to somebody about some of this stuff. So it's interesting. Oh. Yeah, and they run Xamarin and React Native and Ionic. And I mean, if it runs on, an app, on a phone, <laughs> if you build it to run on a phone, you can run it in there. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then I think there are other tools like Sauce Labs that do some of the testing end of what App Center does. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I think overall we kind of covered all the big, big tools, big instruments. Yep. Well, there is instruments, but I guess <laughs> we sort of talked about that. Yeah. At the very, very, very beginning. Uh, yep. Built-in in Xcode, profiles, lots of things. Very useful. Yep. Yeah, definitely worth taking the time to get familiar with. Yep, absolutely. All right, well, let's go ahead and uh, head toward wrapping up and do some picks. Alex, do you want to start us off with some picks? Picks. I actually don't have anything this time. All right, Christina, do you have some picks for us? I have one. Uh, Donnie Walls has been writing a blog post every day for December. And one of the recent ones was actually time profiling an instrument. So it's a really good intro to just very one-on-one. How do I launch this? How do I get it working? What does this mean? Um, so just a quick little 
thing easy to read. Um, but a bunch of stuff he's been writing lately has been really nice. Uh, memory graphs and all that, but uh, finding slow code with instruments is the, the pick for today. Nice. Very nice. We might have to get him on and have him talk to us about instruments. Um, I'm going to jump in with a few picks of my own. Um, so my wife got a deal. I guess she's part of a Disney fan club. And so she got a deal on Disney Plus before it came out. And we've been enjoying that. Um, you've probably seen a bunch of memes from Mandalorian, um, which is a, you know, it, it's a really well done show. We've really been enjoying that. Um, and my kids have also picked up a few other shows on there that they really liked. Um, when I married my wife, we both kind of got into a Disney Channel show called Kim Possible, which is a, it's a cartoon, the teenager that saves the world on a regular basis, pretty much every episode. And it's, it's a super fun show. And my, my teenagers are now getting into it. My 12 year old, and my 14 year old. So, um, that's, that's been a lot of fun to just kind of see some of that. Um, some of the shows that my older kids watched when they were really little are on there. So now my four-year-old is getting into some of the shows that hadn't been on TV for a few years as well. And, uh, they also got into like DuckTales, the new one, but then also went back and watched some of the old ones that were on when I was, you know, a kid. And so that, that's been a ton of fun. So Disney plus is definitely a pick for me. And then, um, the other pick um, a few weeks ago, my mom took us all to go see Frozen 2 when my daughter turned four. And uh, it was funny because we showed up and I was thinking, well, Frozen 2, it's probably, you know, see, it's a sequel, right? So how great can it be? Um, I think it was pretty close to as good as Frozen. I really enjoyed it. There's a musical number in the middle of it, and I'm not going to spoil how it goes. It's called Lost in the Woods. Uh, let's just say people of my generation, you'll see it starting out. You're going to sit there and you're going to go, they're not going to do this. And then you're going to be like, oh my gosh, they're going to do this. And then I literally just sat and laughed through the whole thing. Cause I was like, this is amazing. So, uh, anyway, yeah, go, uh, go watch it. It's, it's definitely well worth it. Fun show. And, uh, yeah, those are my picks. All right. Well, I think we had a pretty good conversation. I really enjoyed this. I have a lot of things to go look into at this point. So go, go check it out. We'll have links to all this stuff in the show notes. And until next time, Max out. Bye. Bye, all. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.